you for setting your podcast dial to 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson. The halls of Congress remain largely closed to the public, but with both the House and Senate recessed this week, they're even quieter than the norm of these past 16 months. The Biden administration is closing out its first six months in office, gearing up for a furious close to the second half of their first year, consumed with battles over infrastructure, taxes, and spending. You know, it's a good time to assess the state of our politics, and I think those of the world more broadly. We live in times of upheaval and realignment. Five years ago, a set of seminal events, Brexit and the election of Donald Trump, heralded a global populist movement from the right that roiled not only our own politics, but those of many nations from Europe to South America. Divisions over class, income, and cultural alienation fueled the rise of political outsiders and accelerated a realignment of party constituencies. As America celebrated its 245th birthday this week, things seem calmer on the surface. But are they really? And what is the next iteration of these political movements, many with antecedents as old as politics itself, but all of them distinctly 21st century? To help answer those questions and many more, I hope, I am so pleased to be joined by my guest today who gives them deep thought and even writes about them. Henry Olson is a Washington Post columnist and senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and one of the best and most granular elections analysts you'll find. Henry Olson, welcome back to 14th and G. Thanks for having me back, Dean. I think you might be have to check the records, but you might be our first repeat guest. Wow. That's an honor. <laughs> Maybe it'll go in your bio. Well, Henry, I actually want to start with that granular political analysis of yours because you have some very interesting observations and polling in your column that's just out today. President Biden continues to enjoy approval ratings, pretty solid, but there may be some warnings there in the crosstabs of what we're seeing. Yeah, there's a few things that there was a series of polls put out by a Democratic advocacy firm uh, called Future Majority. And what it showed was that Biden's job approval is underwater in the marginal states and constituencies that aside from the coronavirus, the key states of Arizona and Michigan and Pennsylvania disapprove of his handling on every single issue. And that In the 37 congressional districts that were within five percentage points in the presidential race, the ones that will decide control of the House, in other words, those two largely disapproved of President Biden's handling of every issue besides the pandemic. There's also data that I haven't written about yet that Biden's job approval among independents is either underwater or 50-50. His national job approval rating is 51%. That that's being held up entirely by Democrats. So six months into the presidency, it's not a disaster, but these are some warning signs that Democrats and Republicans should be looking at. Henry, when we were last together, it was it was just going into the 2020 elections, which came out on the top end, like most analysts predicted, a Biden victory of 300-ish electoral votes. The down ballot went in the complete opposite direction and contravened almost everyone's expectations. The Republicans damn near took the speakership back in the House. They're just four seats down. 
Is what you're seeing in this data a sort of a hangover from 2020 where Democrats really suffered at the polls uh, on the down ballot races, House and Senate? Well, it's, I think it's less than a hangover than a harbinger that the people who made Biden president didn't always vote for Democrats down ballot. That You take a look at suburban districts or ethnic districts where maybe Biden won narrowly, but the Republican won at the congressional level or the state legislative level, that what they want is something different than what the Democratic Party wants. And that uniting the Democratic coalition, which has been what Biden has largely tried to do, leaves many of these people out because they want something even more conservative, which is not to say they want conservative politics, but they want something more to the center, more conservative than what the Democratic Party center wants. So I look at this and I say the House elections were driven by a lot of people who voted for Biden or voted for Joe Jorgensen in the presidency race, voting for the Republican in the House or in the state legislative races. And I think the polling data are saying that that could happen again, that people may remain favorable towards Biden if the question is, do I want Trump, but remain unfavorable towards a sharp turn to the left, if that's what the Democratic Party has to offer. Well, let's turn to the the more global uh, politics at play here. And Henry, I'm really curious how you assess the current state of populism here and abroad. You know, current events, I think, feel calmer, but I don't know that rural non-college voters feel any less alienated than they did five years ago. Is this more calm before the storm or have a lot of these disaffected voters' concerns been satisfied? It depends on the country. There are some places where they've been more satisfied than others, but largely what's been happening around the world is that populism has, on both the left and the right, grown and is now entrenched that Parties that have established themselves on the left, as in Ireland or in South America, or on the right, as in uh, many countries in Europe and in part of the United States. In the United States, you have a populism of the left and the right that has entrenched itself within both major parties. They're not growing in most places, but they're not shrinking either. And whether it's a calm before the storm, in fact, depends on whether there is a storm. That I think that if things get worse in 2022, you will see a resurgence of populist energies, you know, that if the vaccines don't control the virus and much of Europe goes into lockdown number five in 2022, I would not want to be a centrist party member. I would not be want to be a member of an establishment party if the last gasp that they have for their legitimacy proves to be insufficient to restore people's freedoms and the economy. And it's not, you're seeing a resurgence. I mean, South America has a long, rich history of left-wing populism, but Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, it's not just a function of right-wing politics. I thought one of your more interesting observations was this component of nationalism, uh, particularly in the European movements that exists really on the left only in Sinn Féin in Ireland, which uh, I think you said is the only leading uh, left-wing populist party in Europe. And so can a populist movement be successful without that nationalist component? I don't think that a left-wing populist movement can be successful without a national component. 
I don't think that's true. I don't think a right wing populist movement can be successful without that either. But it seems much more natural for elements of the right to talk about the nation. Uh, It's very difficult for various reasons for people in the modern West uh, to talk on the left about the nation state as a good thing. There is a left wing party leader in Germany, Sarah Wagenknecht, who came out with a book in the last week, basically trying to recapture working class nationalism from the right. And she's being attacked from the left as being insufficiently leftist for her effort to do this. This is a party that's descended from the East German communists that has seen its standing erode as former supporters have gravitated to the alternative for Germany, the AfD. And she's trying to get those voters back. But the establishment left won't let her do it precisely because the grounds on which she knows she has to fight nationalism and immigration control are anathema to those voters. Well, Henry, what's really at the source of this? Is is this just about money and jobs? Is this just about cultural disaffection? What is the source of this voter disaffection, this sort of reflexive anger, anyone or anything that smacks of the establishment? I think it's a mixture of both, that in most countries in the West, the people who don't have college degrees have either not gotten ahead very much or have fallen behind or have avoided falling behind only because they've been able to take up more government support. These people also tend to be culturally more to the right, which is not to say that they are conservatives in an American sense, but they're more supportive of tradition, more supportive of the nation, more supportive of an idea that solidarity is something that people owe to one another in the concrete rather than in the abstract. And so these things go hand in hand. There's very little evidence of right-wing populism in places that have done economically well, but in places that haven't, you tend to find these things go hand in hand. And in Ireland, where they had a collapse in 2008, the party that picked up was not an anti-immigrant right-wing party, but it was the socialist Sinn Féin, which could, because of its nationalistic bent, compulsively and uh, to almost a third of Irish persuasively, argue that they represented the aspirations of solidarity of the Irish people. And so these are things that that drive populisms both left and right, cultural disalienation coupled with economic dissatisfaction create a, a very potent brew or a populist uh, chef. I guess because their politics are probably the most analogous to our own, but we pretty reflexively look to Great Britain where Boris Johnson seems to be one of seems to be one of the last uh, people heads of state standing who really rode that populism to electoral success and seems to be holding on to it relatively well. Mm-hmm. What do you attribute that to, and and do you see others similarly situated? In a two-party situation, uh, you find more incentives to find ways to incorporate populist movements than in a multi-party situation. What Boris Johnson did was move the conservative party away from its traditional orientation based on the upper class and move it towards a situation where, for the first time in recorded history, people of the lower classes are likelier to vote Tory than the upper classes. 
Successful center-right politicians across the globe are trying to navigate the same shift. Multi-party systems make it more difficult because you can always have somebody who can message to that populist element more directly than somebody who's trying to bring together a coalition. But in Australia, you have the same thing going on, that Scott Morrison has been gaining more support from blue-collar voters, even as he loses some support in educated areas. And his coalition hangs on and governs Australia with a similar type of coalition that is forming in the Republican Party and which Boris Johnson demonstrated can win smashingly in the 2019 British elections. Uh, as did Ronald Reagan in the Republican Party. Uh, Trump did it to great effect in 2016, but it wasn't the first time that you've had the center-right party in American politics bring on the blue-collar vote to enormous uh, landslide effect. Yeah, I mean, what happened after Reagan was that his heirs didn't understand how to do it and that they understood the element of talking about social issues. So they were able to increasingly grow the Republican vote among the religiously observant Protestant and a little bit among the religiously observant Catholic. But they lacked the economic element uh, that people who are more downscale don't see anything wrong with support programs for people like them. And so you had a lack of grasping that uh, not all blue collar voters went to church on Sundays and not all of them could be brought over solely by cultural appeals. And that gave the Democratic Party its window in that 1992 to 2010 period where they were competitive with secular blue collar voters nationally. But it's really Barack Obama who, by focusing on health care rather than on jobs, shows these voters that he's really not in line with them. And ever since that, they've been looking uh, for somebody that they could vote for on the right. And Donald Trump was that person. And since then, they've transferred their loyalties to a Republican Party, but only a Republican Party that looks like Trump, a Republican Party that wants to go back to one that is the sort that most old hand Republican consultants or donors would like is one that will find these people looking askance at the Republicans and feeling disaffected and unwanted by them as well. Right. The old school, whether you want to call it country club or chamber of commerce, very sort of business oriented Republican party, parts of that are still there in, in, in the free market outlook. But I think those days are gone. So who won can the center-right populism succeed without Donald Trump? And do you see anyone out there, Nikki Haley, Governor DeSantis, uh, Vice President Pence, uh, who can be the heir to that mantle? I definitely think it can, because what drove people to Trump was issues that Trump's personality helped seal the deal. But if Trump had had the same personality and was talking about open borders and globalization, he would not have gotten those voters. It was his personality convinced them that he was sincere in what he was saying. Uh, I think that a Republican Party that is a conservative populist coalition is one that can easily, or, or perhaps not easily, but can readily become a majority party. But it requires understanding that these voters like free markets and they like support. They're, it's not an either or. 
It's markets with redistribution and it's markets with protection, not markets in their pure form. And that's what's hard for Republican establishmentarians to grasp. I think Nikki Haley has thrown in with the establishment and she's not really a credible leader for this coalition. Maybe she'll switch back. I think Mike Pence has studiously avoided taking a position on these issues, but it's he would have to disown quite a bit of his congressional career and his uh, in order to make that credible, that, but it's possible that he could. I think Ron DeSantis has done the best job of being conservative populist without being Donald Trump, and that's one reason why people increasingly look at him as somebody who could be the next nominee. Well, that is several years away. Uh, we're still over a year out from the midterm elections, but uh, it's it's never too early or it's never not fun to analyze uh, what's coming. Republicans, as we said, are down four seats in the House, which in the president's uh, first midterm should be an easily closable gap. Uh, you add into that the benefits they'll get from all the state legislative races they won in in the redistricting battles, uh, and then uh, well, let's start with the House. What do you what do you see there? Would would it just be political malpractice for Republicans not to take the speakership back? Well, you know, you can never. Uh, there's a year and a half of events that can intervene. That if we were talking about this in the Bush administration, we would say that there is a statistical likelihood that Democrats would retake control because Republicans had a very narrow majority, first term, midterm effects, and then 9-11 happens. Now, of course, there were also redistricting effects that were going to favor Republicans, and that could have counterbalanced it. Uh, but the fact is the intervention of 9-11 changed everything. So what I'll do is say, if there are not massive events that are successfully handled by President Biden, then there's like an 85% chance that the Republicans will regain control of the House with between a, a gain of somewhere between 10 and 25 seats. I know Republicans are saying the average loss is 26, but you know that's pushed up by a couple of waves that really the median loss is what they should be looking at. And that's somewhere in that 10 to 20 seat range. Uh, a shift of that should also give them narrow control of the Senate because you have four 50-50 states that have Senate seats up, Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. And if you see a two or three point shift from the Democrats to the Republicans favor, which is what history suggests, they should win all four of those seats, which would give Republicans a 52 to 48 lead in the Senate. I find of all those states, I, I think the most interesting uh, of the last many election cycles has been Pennsylvania. Senator Pat Toomey's retiring there. I think it was James Carville that described Pennsylvania as uh, Pittsburgh on the left, Philly on the right, and Alabama in the middle. <laughs> what, what do you see specifically there in Pennsylvania? Because it seems like it could be a real bellwether for, for all the reasons you just articulated. Yeah, well, you know, Pennsylvania is like uh, the nation rich small. You know, you have a minority population, although much fewer Latinos. Um, you have the suburban shift that's been going on 15, 20 years, but it accelerated under Trump so that the suburbs, particularly around Philadelphia, are now uh, the key constituency for Democrats. But that's, of course, been offset by small town and rural and uh, in many cases, even urban, that if you look carefully in Philadelphia suburbs, 
the educated suburbs move left, but the working class ones along the river, along Delaware uh, River, moved right. They weren't as large as the educated ones, but they provided a counterbalance. So it wasn't just a rural or a small town effect. And in Pennsylvania, that roughly balances 50-50. You get a couple more suburbanites to say, hey, I want to send Biden a message. Don't move so far left. Then suddenly it turns into 51-49 Republican. Uh, The Democrats don't really have too many more votes that they can get out of Pennsylvania. The big wild card in the midterm is that traditionally low education voters turn out less for midterms than upper education voters. That used to be a Republican advantage. Now it's a Democratic advantage. So Democrats say, well, that's going to work to our favor. But, you know, I'll just go with Missouri. I I want them to show me first. (laughs) Well, Henry, I have to ask, because when when we were talking about the 2020 elections and and the down ballot contravening expectations, it just seemed to build on this case that from 2016, that polling – was in a complete state of disrepair. They're either not reaching the right people, they're not asking the right questions. What are you looking at? How do you assess? Who do you trust to give an accurate reading of where the electorate is? And is that even possible right now? I don't think there's any one pollster that's doing it right. What basically happened is that pollsters have a very difficult time reaching occasional voters of lower education status. And in places like the Southwest, that means they tend to underpoll Democrats because those voters tend to be Latino. But pretty much everywhere else in the country, it means they underpoll Republicans because those voters tend to be white without a college degree. I resisted the temptation to, when I did my predictions, to simply shift it to the right by two points to try and counteract that. Had I done that, I would have been only half a point off. So that's actually what I'm thinking about doing is uh, is saying, look, we have a consistent underpolling of Republicans, particularly in the Midwest and in the South. And unless they show me that their data have improved, I'm going to presume that they haven't. And that means I will do a bit of a shift that on the margin will matter. You know, 50-50 race in Pennsylvania I'm going to assume the Republican will win because those people are a little more likely to be underpolled. But you have a huge polling problem that they have not been able to fix, and I don't think they can fix. Well, Henry Olson, as you said, a lot uh, between now and then, a lot going on both here and abroad uh, as we wait for Congress to return. Uh, I hope you'll be the first three-peat guest on 14th and G here very soon. Henry Olson. Thanks for joining me on 14th and G. Thanks for having me. 